This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher. On the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese government arrested five feminist activists and jailed them for 37 days. The Feminist Five became a global cause celeb, with Hillary Clinton speaking out on their behalf, and activists inundating social media with hashtag Free the Five messages. But the five are only symbols of a much larger feminist movement of civil rights lawyers, labor activists, performance artists, and online warriors, prompting an unprecedented awakening among China's educated urban women. In Betraying Big Brother, journalist and scholar Leda Hong Fincher argues that the popular, broad-based movement poses the greatest challenge to China's authoritarian regime today. Through interviews with the Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists, Hong Fincher illuminates both the difficulties they face and their joy of betraying Big Brother, as one of the Feminist Five wrote of the defiance she felt during her detention. Tracing the rise of a new feminist consciousness now finding expression through the Me Too movement, and describing how the communist regime has suppressed the history of its own feminist struggles, Betraying Big Brother is a story of how the movement against patriarchy could reconfigure China and the world. Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The brutality of the Saudi royal family had been hiding in plain sight all along. It was an open secret that was convenient to the political, media, and business elites for whom the kingdom means big business and an invaluable geostrategic proxy. But the brutal murder and dismemberment of a single Washington Post columnist, Jamal Shashoji, has forced Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his American enablers onto the defensive as the regime's brutal war on Yemen, global support for Salafist fundamentalism, and kleptocratic repression have suddenly been subjected to intense public scrutiny. My guest today is Madawi al-Rashid, a professor at the London School of Economics Middle East Center and a dissident scholar from Saudi Arabia. Her many works on the kingdom include Muted Modernists, The Struggle Over Divine Politics in Saudi Arabia, from Hearst, and Salman's Legacy, The Dilemmas of a New Era, a volume that she edited from Oxford University Press. I strongly recommend that you pick up her work. Before we get started, this podcast is made possible because of people like you walking around, doing their laundry, washing dishes, while listening to these interviews who contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. Also, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I have a lot of left-wing books to send you. We are also planning to have every single dig interview transcribed because I know that a lot of people want and that some people need written transcripts. And that costs money. 
please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. Okay, here's Madawi al-Rashid. Madawi al-Rashid, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Given all of the atrocities committed over so many years by the Saudi royal family, it's remarkable that this single murder turned out to be such a red line. It's hard to escape the conclusion that Hashoji, having become a Washington Post columnist, was someone who members of the American media and political establishment could identify with. And so if that's the critical distinction here, then Mohammed bin Salman's big mistake was that he failed to understand the precise boundaries of the U.S. establishment's moral community. Is is this what's at the core of what's happening here, that after killing and harming so many people inside and outside the kingdom whose lives weren't considered valuable, that the royal family has made the mistake of killing someone who mattered to the people who matter? Killing dissidents, kidnapping them, even if they are members of the royal family, had been practiced by the Saudi regime. Uh, even before um, Mohammed bin Salman, the current crown prince, came to power. Uh, one, uh, you, you rightly ask the question, why this selective outrage over the murder of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say an opposition figure, but a defector? Uh, Jamal Khashoggi uh, had worked with the Saudi regime under different kings and even uh, with the uh, Saudi intelligence services since the 1980s. Uh, however, he fell out with some um, um, cliques in, within the regime and above all, he uh, antagonized Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and Khashoggi refused to praise Mohammed bin Salman's so-called reforms. And he chose to leave the country and ended up in Washington uh, out of the blue. Uh, Khashoggi knew a lot. He's an insider and um, he was close to the corridors of power. Um, his presence in Washington alarmed the Saudis uh, for one simple reason. Mohammed bin Salman, since he came to power in 2015-2016, had been pouring a lot of money on public relations companies, on placing uh, opinion uh, pieces in the main uh, U.S. Uh, press, uh, setting up foundations in the U.S. in order to shift public opinion, and above all, the opinion of people who matter in the U.S., uh, the U.S. administration, uh, he saw a window of opportunity with the election of Mr. Trump to the presidency. And uh, to have a critical voice like uh, Jamal Khashoggi uh, placed at the center of American politics and administration at one of the m most important uh, uh, newspapers writing uh, columns debunking the myth about Mohammed bin Salman as the uh, reformer uh, was alarming. So um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman could not tolerate that. 
and it is uh, it is so uh, important to understand why he was targeted. Jamal Khashoggi was targeted. It's because he knew a lot. He was able to communicate with people. We have a lot of Saudi dissidents around the globe. Here in London, we have several uh, Saudi figures who came in the early 1990s, but they haven't actually been given a platform in Britain or in the US or anywhere else in the world. Uh, And they weren't treated as uh, important insiders to the Saudi regime who can actually tell the rest of the world about its intrigues. Um, So that was one of the reasons. The second reason for the outrage that we have seen over Jamal Khashoggi is the way the murder was conducted. It is pretty alarming and shocking for many observers to have uh, an individual uh, enter the consulate of his own country and disappear. Um, And uh, the leaks we have heard uh, paint a gloomy and very, very dark uh, picture of a premeditated murder, a planned uh, crime that took place in the consulate. And this is why um, this particular type of uh, crime had alarmed the world. Saudi Arabia had been treated as an ally and as a partner by most Western governments, the US, Britain, France, Germany, and the rest of of the world. Um, And its stability was highly valued and uh, protected by by mainly the US. And for the Saudi regime, and Mohammed uh, bin Salman in particular, to uh, plan a murder Uh, uh, or um, uh, have so-called rogue elements conduct a murder inside a a consulate is outrageous for the rest of the world because he actually punctured the world uh, as we know it. Um, A lot of political dissidents and activists get shot. In Britain, we had some Russian uh, uh, scandals here. Um, But to do it inside the consulate means that Mohammed bin Salman probably thought that he could get away with it. And because the embassy or the consulate is sort of sovereign territory, uh, it, it is used for a horrific crime. And this is why the outrage, I think. Uh, so it's, it's these two things, Jamal Khashoggi as a person and his history, what he knew, and the way the murder was conducted, the place of that murder. Um, And and as a result, you know, uh, uh, three, four weeks later, we're still talking about this uh, crime. Uh, We still do not have evidence that the body is found. Um, The way it was conducted, uh, it, it, it it made this crime not simply a crime, but a political crime, which means that so many governments are involved in trying to uh, maybe score goals um, while the Saudi regime is still in the accused box. It's interesting what you're saying, that it's preci- it was precisely Hashoji's position within the Washington establishment that made him such a target, but ironically, his murder has also exposed this cultivation of that very same establishment by the Saudi regime that's been hiding in plain sight. And in that way, the, the, the explosive impact that the murder has had reminds me 
of the disclosure of the accusations against Harvey Weinstein and how they suddenly exposed all of these powerful men whose sexual harassment and assault had been this open secret. But when that came out, it suddenly forced all of these institutions for which impunity and looking the other way had been the norm to suddenly be held to account. And in the same way, after Hashoji's murder, the media, the foreign policy establishment, major corporations, and the U.S. government were all suddenly forced to answer for their close ties to the Saudi royal family, and none of those relationships had been secret. They just hadn't been controversial. But the reaction to the murder means that they are now seen in this new, more sinister light. Well, absolutely. There is one uh, important reason why these kind of um, open secrets are no longer tolerated today. I think this is um, uh, um, thanks to uh, global civil society. Um, it is almost uh, inconceivable that Washington will remain silent over the murder of Khashoggi, um, uh, simply because a lot of um, uh, civil society organizations that are reaching out to public opinion through social media and other other means had made it very difficult to remain silent. All these governments who expressed this outrage over the last three, four uh, weeks had been subjected to serious criticism um, uh, over, for example, the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia. This had been going on for several uh, years now uh, since the Saudis started the war in in Yemen in 2015. And uh, I, uh, here in Britain, there is a strong uh, uh, um, uh, movement that opposes the sale of these uh, arms, uh, especially uh, when they are uh, uh, resulting in uh, the destruction, I would say the total destruction of a very poor country, precipitating a humanitarian crisis, famine, cholera, and disease. And the weapons that are used in this war are sold by the U.S. and uh, Britain, among other uh, countries. But these are the main countries that, uh, that provide Saudi Arabia with these weapons. And therefore, uh, public opinion, um, they can see the images of uh, starving children, of the destruction, of the bombing of school buses. And there is a lot of pressure uh, on these governments to 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 explain, to provide a, a justification. So the murder of Khashoggi was symbolic act to expose the Saudi regime. If the uh, international conscience hadn't been moved by the destruction of Yemen, then uh, they, the, the, the murder of Khashoggi offered uh, yet another opportunity to expose this dubious relationship between very, very strong and powerful Western governments and uh, mainly a dictatorship. Something that I found incredibly bizarre was how in the days when the Saudi government was still insisting that Hashoji had left the consulate alive, it was reported that the Saudis were considering acknowledging that he had indeed died but that they would describe the murder as an interrogation gone wrong. And then that's indeed what happened. What do you make of how this absurd makeshift cover-up was publicly telegraphed or maybe even floated in advance? Well, I think they could not explain the murder. 
And uh, since the 2nd of October, so many uh, official statements announced that, um, uh, as you said, Khashoggi entered the embassy, the consulate, and then left. But all these proved to be lies. And they were just trying to cover a story that uh, that had been exposed to the whole world. And actually, the, the reaction of the Turkish government and officials, the way they dealt with it, had made the Saudis um, uh, uh, almost desperate. Every time they came up with a lie, we uh, hear from Turkish sources that there is a new leak about Khashoggi being murdered. Then we heard about an audio tape that they possessed. Obviously, we have not heard um, what was going on in the uh, in the consulate. Khashoggi was there, and therefore, you know, they they kept the Turks kept the Saudis on their toes uh, in the way they dealt with this uh, murder. And eventually, without actually putting too much pressure, the Saudis uh, just recently admitted that Khashoggi died. But even now, there are questions that we don't have answers to. So, where is the body? Are the Saudis going to tell the Turks where the body is? Then another story about uh, it uh, about Khashoggi uh, in the consulate uh, undergoing interrogation that went wrong. Um, and, and that was the official Saudi story a week later. But then now we have uh, the public prosecutor in Saudi Arabia saying that it was a premeditated crime. Um, and therefore, the, the story evolved, uh, hoping that it will just go away. But the Saudi regime and MBS in particular underestimated how important this was for the international community for the two reasons I, I gave earlier. And, and therefore, the story is unfolding every week. There are leaks from the Turkish side and then the Saudis are forced to respond and hopefully eventually they will admit responsibility and tell the whole world and, and mainly his family um, uh, what happened to Khashoggi and where his body or parts of his body are. You made an, a really important point. Um, obviously, Erdogan is quite a sinister figure himself, but he's a political genius and has played this whole Thing remarkably skillfully in terms of leaking out information in just such a way as to as to consistently embarrass and undermine the Saudis as they attempt to cover up what happened inside the consulate. What what is Erdogan's motivation? Erdogan is a shrewd uh, a politician. He's been in power for several years, and he's definitely more experienced than uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who'd only been in office for like three years. Um, what we should not underestimate the tension and the rivalry between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. For the last probably three, four decades, we always talked about the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, and we've exhausted that topic. We talked about proxy war, wars between Iran and Saudi Arabia in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Bahrain, almost everywhere in the, in the Arab world. But we have uh, uh, overlooked an important rivalry. In my view, uh, the Saudi-Iranian rivalry is not uh, 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 existential. 
Iran, in its political system, in its theology, does not actually represent an attraction to Saudis. Uh, remember, Iran is a, a Shia country, Saudi Arabia is a Sunni country, and uh, the Islamists in Saudi Arabia are not really attracted by a Shia theology that uh, explains the Iranian regime, especially what is called Wilayat al-Faqih, which is the rule of the guardian, who is is a religious scholar in Iran. But the Muslim Brotherhood is a different story. Yeah. How, when we come to Turkey, uh, Turkey is Sunni, Saudi Arabia is Sunni, and Turkey, in the eyes of the Muslim Brotherhood, or many, many people in the Middle East, I would say, regard it as a modern country that combines this sort of language of Islam and authenticity and uh, keeping Islam alive um, and democracy in inverted commas. Um, so Erdogan himself represents a model of a Muslim leader who is, uh, uh, his country is a member of NATO. Uh, he still has beaches where people can go and swim. Uh, Istanbul is a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, if you want to pray, you can pray. If you want to go to a pub or a bar, you can. So he combines a lot of contradictory um, uh, impulses uh, at the level of society, religion, etc. And a lot of people in, in Saudi Arabia and the Arab world in general look at this model as an alternative to military rule in the republics of the Arab world or in the kingdoms and the monarchies. And therefore, Saudi Arabia fears that with the so-called Turkish model, regardless of whether it's perfect or we agree with it or we don't. Also, in recent years, with the clampdown on, clamp down on Islamists across uh, many countries in the Middle East, Turkey has become a refuge for them. Uh, they have uh, migrated, they have been in exile there. Some of them just left their countries in the Gulf and in Saudi Arabia and moved to Istanbul. Uh, and Istanbul became a meeting point for many Islamists who are uh, free to get together, set up uh, research centers or lobbying or media, media uh, outlet there. And Saudi Arabia fears that uh, uh, its own Islamists, that, uh, whom it, it suppresses at home, and there are several important Islamists who are not necessarily radical, but nevertheless, they are Islamists. Uh, they are in prison in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia fears the so-called Turkish model and its appeal across many sectors of society. And, and, and on top of that, a sort of ideological fear from Turkey, uh, there is the problem with Qatar. Saudi Arabia and Qatar um, had very bad relations since 2014, and uh, Saudi Arabia imposed sanctions, and um, basically the two countries are at, at a war at the level of media. And uh, when Saudi Arabia uh, boycotted Qatar, uh, there was worry in a small country like Qatar that the Saudis would move in uh, with their army or uh, or uh, maybe uh, uh, lead to that will lead to a coup in Qatar so turkey sent 5000 turkish soldiers to be based in qatar 
Uh, and that was uh, regarded by the Saudi regime as an act of aggression and stopped trusting Turkey. And the Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood is also at the center of that story because Qatar was a major supporter of the Brotherhood and was seen as propagating its position via Al Jazeera Arabic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, a third reason is... Uh, both Turkey, Erdogan in particular, and Saudi Arabia aspire to lead the Muslim world. I mean, they have this grandiose uh, sort of idea that uh, they can be the leaders of the uh, the Sunni world of, of Islam. Um, Saudi Arabia claims that on the basis of its geography, uh, where Mecca and Medina, the two holy cities for Muslims, uh, it can build a, a pan-Islamic legitimacy and uh, try to influence Islamic affairs and countries uh, as far as Indonesia, Malaysia, and, and even among Muslims in, uh, in, in Western countries, uh, simply because it, it claims that uh, its geography, its the importance of this geography for Muslims uh, will give it that kind of pan-Islamic legitimacy. However, Turkey also has this kind of uh, uh, um, uh, project, and the project uh, stems from history as the Ottoman Empire. It was not even a country, it was an empire with multiple ethnicities, religions, and, and groups of people until 1924 uh, when the Islamic Caliphate uh, of the Ottoman Empire was abolished by Ataturk, the, the, the founder of modern Turkey. Um, and on, that, on the basis of this history of Islamic empire, uh, perhaps now they, they try to build a legitimacy among Muslims um, outside the borders of Turkey. And uh, Erdogan, uh, in supporting certain Muslim causes, uh, espousing the Palestinian issue, um, is, is, is building this kind of reputation as a person who the whole world will have to talk to uh, uh, when it comes to Islamic affairs or the affairs of the Muslim world. So this this rivalry between Turkey and Saudi Arabia can't be ignored. And we have this uh, murder committed on Turkish territory, albeit in, an, in a Saudi consulate, which actually made the whole world look for Erdogan, who is supposed to come up with answers um, based on his uh, country's intelligence and uh, uh, intelligence services and investigation. So suddenly Erdogan was the person uh, uh, that the whole world waited for uh, to find out what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, which must have uh, annoyed the Saudis a lot. But the murder was, uh, was a, a, a crime that the Saudi regime was daring to commit, uh, uh, probably in a thoughtless way. Uh, uh, and also it's, it's a reflection of what power uh, uh, allows uh, people to do uh, irresponsible behavior because they assume that they could get away with it. I want to talk about the representation of Saudi Arabia in Europe and the United States. Abdullah al-Aryan had a 
really powerful post in Jadalia entitled 70 Years of the New York Times Describing Saudi Royals as Reformers. There is this persistent and long-standing effort to portray one of the most reactionary regimes on earth as always just on the cusp of embracing liberal modernity, as Thomas Friedman put it in a 2017 column that bin Salman was a disruptor shaking up the establishment who is, quote, more McKinsey than Wahhabi. What is it that drives this desire in the U.S. to frame Saudi Arabia as almost in a process of unveiling itself, always just about to become more like us in the West? And do you see a similar dynamic in Europe, or is this a more particularly American phenomenon? I've seen this um, for several years now, for several decades, uh, reading the Western press. Um, It's a mixture of uh, trying to polish the image of the Saudi regime uh, in Western uh, countries uh, to justify this alliance Uh, and the support that the West gives to Saudi Arabia. You know, in a way, the West is probably deep down embarrassed by its relationship with a dictatorship. It's not about simply the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. There had been other nasty issues that were exposed. So, for example, the Wahhabi ideology that was exported to uh, uh, places as far as Detroit and Jakarta. There are other unpleasant aspects of the Saudi regime that the world uh, knows very well. But, you, for example, when King Saud uh, visited New York, I do remember reading about a column in the nine, late 1950s uh, pro- de- describing him as a reformer. And three, four years later, this king, King Saud, was deposed by his uh, brother because he was uh, hopeless. He plundered wealth, he overspent, uh, and there was a serious crisis. But then people uh, expect that uh, uh, once the, they read these columns, uh, positive uh, description of the Saudi reformers, um, they will forget, and then we start again. And with every king, uh, there is this sort of wishful thinking and hope that the, uh, uh, Saudi, the new Saudi king or crown prince will be the revolutionary reformer. And it's all about expecting revolution from the top, that Saudi society can't actually get its act together. They can't organize themselves and they need an enlightened leadership to lead them into the 20th century than the 21st century. So this, this kind of, of discourse has been rehearsed. We all know it. I was very skeptical about the reformer, the young prince, as if his age uh, allows him to to actually uh, uh, open the country to democratic forces, uh, allow freedom of speech, etc. So it is a mixture of justifying to the public a very unusual and embarrassing relationship. Today, Mohammed bin Salman is an embarrassment to the American uh, administration. Uh, I mean, there's nothing uh, worse than your your, uh, client embarrasses you by his behavior. And it can't be... And making all of the 
public relations work that you've invested so much time and money in uh, useless. <laughs> yes, but I, I think, you know, uh, uh, with with multiple sources of information, with, uh, with the social media, I would be surprised if that uh, PR campaign actually convinced people. If it had convinced people of the reformist tendencies of the Saudi regime, we wouldn't have had the outrage. Uh, I mean, in, in the streets of London, if I meet anybody, who has nothing to do with the Middle East, they ask me, what did Mohammed bin Salman do so he's not the reformer? And these are not people who are interested in the Middle East. They're just you know, running their lives. They, have, they are aware of this crime now. And it will be very difficult to cover it up. However, the essential question is what uh, the, the Western governments are going to do about it. I mean, they have two options, and I can't think of a third. Uh, if they uh, they can choose to continue business as usual, and that's not an option. But if they do, they will have to deal with the consequences that the embarrassment and even the murder might happen on the streets of London, of uh, Washington, and elsewhere in the world, because the the person who committed this crime thinks that he could get away with murder. The second option is to, you know, uh, one has to be realistic in a world uh, of, of uh, in the world of politics. We, I do not expect all Western governments to cut diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia, ostracize Saudi Arabia, um, um, and allow it to go its own way. This is not going to happen, and no realistic person would actually expect it to happen. However. There are so many other things that the U.S., uh, Britain, France, Germany, etc., can do, and that is collective action. Collective action to put pressure on the Saudi regime to open up its uh, uh, public uh, political sphere and uh, develop itself into a, a kind of de democratic system. They can do that by making the uh, uh, um, sale of arms, uh, technology, economic cooperation, all conditional on the Saudi re regime behaving as a respectable uh, government uh, that respects international law, human rights, etc. Um, and, and this is the only way we can move forward. It, it is not about imposing sanctions of Saudi Arabia, because at the end of the day, we have seen how sanctions hurt the people that you want to save rather than the regime. The regime will always find ways uh, to cope and also find new partnership with Russia, with China and everybody else. So the, the action has to be collective by Western government so that the regime can't punish each country like it did when Canada criticized uh, the detention of uh, women activists in Saudi Arabia, and the regime was able to punish Canada and cancel uh, investment opportunities and uh, um, expel uh, the diplomatic mission from Riyadh. But if there is a collective uh, uh, action done in coordination between several countries, then the Saudi regime can't really um, uh, ignore that move, which would be extremely important. And perhaps that pressure alone could push the regime to change its behavior. I want to talk about bin Salman's most high-profile domestic policies. First, his mass arrest of Saudi elites as part of what he billed 
as an anti-corruption drive. Second, what has been framed as a program of social reform to increase women's rights and sideline religious conservatives. And third, his plan to diversify and modernize the Saudi economy. Let's start with the so-called anti-corruption crackdown. What does it entail? How has it been spun by the Saudi government? And how has it been received in the U.S. and European media and the foreign policy and political establishments? Yeah, the anti-corruption campaign, I think, is a a well-rehearsed sort of strategy. Uh, When you don't have the rule of law, you don't have courts, uh, you can accuse your opponents of corruption, round them up and put them in detention, in this case, a five-star hotel. Uh, There were no court cases against them. I'm not saying that they were innocent, but what I'm saying is that uh, if we had court cases, we had lawyers looking into this, open courts, then we might believe the story that this is all about corruption. Uh, And also the selective nature of of the uh, uh, of this strategy so we don't know why x was detained but not y although they were both highly uh, uh, important personalities in government um and and therefore it is very very ambiguous but it is a well known strategy if you want to get rid of your opponents accuse them of corruption put them in prison humiliate them then they could uh, they pay ransom money and you release them, and this is exactly what happened in Saudi Arabia. Um, and therefore, this corruption issue uh, you have to take it with a, a pinch of salt because it's it's not clear. Um, uh, interesting enough, quite a lot of the detainees are uh, the cousins of Mohammed bin Salman. The, some of them are extremely wealthy, like Walid bin Talal. Uh, others had been in charge of military forces like Mit'ab bin Abdullah, who was the director, the head of the Saudi Arabian National Guard. And those people were extremely powerful. They are competitors to Mohammed bin Salman. So Mohammed bin Salman accused them of corruption, sidelined them, humiliate them, then released them. And now they have no choice but to remain silent. So that's that. They, the Western press... Uh, thought uh, about this uh, initially as a good move, ridding Saudi Arabia of corruption. Um, But the the whole story just didn't fit with what was going on on the ground because it it is not clear why certain individuals were left out of the detention center and others uh, were targeted. I think by the end of that episode in November 2017, we are all convinced that um, Mohammed bin Salman was actually purging his opponents from among his cousins and from among the uh, financial and economic elite in Saudi Arabia. And he is in desperate need for cash after the fall of the oil prices in 2014. Um, And he was able to get some money back from those individuals. And of course, uh, other princes remain untouched. So uh, that, that leaves a big question about the corruption issue. So he kind of gets two birds with one stone. He gets to sideline political rivals as part of this project of instituting a more consolidated and vertical patrilineal line of royal succession and, on the other hand, expropriate the wealth of 
rich adversaries. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a good recipe, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but of course it it has consequences. Uh, the consequence of this is that he really can't trust anybody anymore. Uh, there's quite a lot of uh, um, apprehension um, among the royalty, um, and they're all worried about what Mohammed bin Salman uh, can do next. Also, investors, especially foreign investors. Uh, became worried about the erratic behavior. If somebody like Al-Walid bin Talal, who is like the darling of the Western press, uh, because he's a, he's a wealthy individual, he's an entrepreneur, he he's like the perfect Saudi, the perfect Saudi uh, 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 finance person. Uh, his uh, entrepreneurial activities uh, are global. So he fits in the narrative of wishful thinking that this is the person we, we can work with because he understands the language of money. Um, but to, to humiliate him and put him in, in, in detention uh, and charge him with corruption um, was a, a little bit too, uh, you know, going too far. Um, so there, there were a lot of question marks about the. Um, um, corruption campaign. To put that in a little bit of historical context, can you can you explain how the country's various powerful business elites traditionally intersect with the various centers of power within this massive royal family, and how Bin Salman is rearranging that matrix? Saudi economy is a centralized uh, economy. Its main uh, source is oil almost like 80 to 90% of Saudi wealth comes from oil. Um, and uh, most Saudis are employed in the public sector. They're government employees. Uh, the private sector is extremely small. And historically, there had been some uh, uh, families known for their commercial activities, uh, but they they could not survive as independent um, uh, you know, businesses, simply because the purchasing power of the state is extremely important. So for a business to succeed, they have to sell, they have to become subcontractors, they have to sell to the government. And this applies to every sector of the economy, from construction to the oil industry, to uh, all other businesses. So if you're a Saudi businessman and you are interested in cars, you want to bring a, a, a brand or a car to the, to the country, Mercedes, let's say, um, that you have to have the right connections with the government in order to be granted the license and also to protect yourself. The government has to uh, pledge not to give uh, uh, licenses to competitors uh, in the country. So it's it's based on nepotism and networking. Um, and, and therefore, these kind of elites evolved over the years with the oil boom. They started uh, selling things to the government uh, as subcontractors. So let's say the Saudi government wants to uh, expand the Holy Mosque in Mecca. They would give the construction contract 
to a company that is close to the regime. And this happened to be the, the well-known company called the Bin Laden Construction Company. And the Bin Laden Construction Company survived over the decades on contracts, uh, huge contracts to build uh, infrastructure in cities, to, to expand the mosque in Mecca. And this um, is part of the... Las Vegasization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the style tends to follow what the taste of, of those who commission the work. Uh, and, and therefore, this commercial elite is hardly independent. It doesn't exert any pressure. And this is one thing in the West that is misunderstood about Saudi Arabia. When they think that we need to have a middle class in Saudi Arabia to, to have a, a reform. But they don't realize that the middle class in Saudi Arabia is employed by the government. And if the middle class expresses uh, an opinion critical of the government, they could lose their job. And this is exactly what happens to uh, academics and professors at universities who are employed by the government because there are no independent universities. All the universities are the public sector. And a, a, a lot of professors who express critical opinions, they are uh, um, suspended from their job. They lose their salary and nobody wants to employ you again if if you have uh, antagonized the government. So the middle class itself is, the, is a salaried uh, uh, middle class, unlike the middle classes and how they emerged in, uh, um, uh, in the West. If you want to talk about the working class, the same thing. The, the, the Saudi working class is imported from outside the country in order to mitigate against a kind of movement that would allow them to seek rights as workers. And this started much earlier uh, in the 1950s with the oil industry. And the excuse was that Saudis were not actually ready to be employed because they didn't have the skills or the education. So the government started employing uh, importing masses of uh, cheap, uh, skilled or unskilled labor from Africa, Asia, and keeping the high uh, salaried jobs that, to Westerners, the technical expertise, etc. And, and this is a foreign labor force. Uh, the drivers, the security guards in the shopping center, uh, the the, uh, the people who fill peop uh, the cars at petrol stations, uh, and those people have no rights. You can't organize yourself in a union, and if you demonstrate asking for your right, they just put you on a plane and send you back to your country. So in a way, the regime had secured that there is no grassroots movement among those workers because they are foreigners with precarious uh, legal status. Uh, the middle class is employed by the government and the, f the financial elite is very de much dependent on the, uh, uh, on the jobs from the government. And, and so you create a situation where uh, social movement is very difficult to emerge in a country like Saudi Arabia. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Lights in the Distance, 
Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. A mother puts her children into a refrigerator truck and asks, what else could I do? A runaway teenager comes of age on the streets, sleeping in abandoned buildings. A student leaves his war-ravaged country behind because he doesn't want to kill. Everyone among the thousands of people who come to Europe in search of asylum each year possesses a unique story. But those stories don't end as they cross into the West. In Lights in the Distance, acclaimed journalist Daniel Trilling draws on years of reporting to build a portrait of the refugee crisis as seen through the eyes of the people who experienced it firsthand. As the European Union has grown, so has a tangled and often violent system designed to filter out unwanted migrants. Visiting camps and hostels, sneaking into detention centers, and delving into his own family's history of displacement, Trilling weaves together the stories of people he met and followed from country to country. In doing so, he shows that the terms commonly used to define them, refugee or economic migrant, legal or illegal, deserving or undeserving, fall woefully short of capturing the complex realities. The founding story of the EU is that it exists to ensure the horrors of the 20th century are never repeated. Now, as it comes to terms with the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War, its declared values of freedom, tolerance, and respect for human rights are being put to the test. Lights in the Distance is a uniquely powerful and illuminating exploration of the nature and human dimensions of the crisis. Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. Out now from Verso Books. Let's talk about the condition of women. Bin Salman has been hailed for curbing the power of the religious police, the the mutawain who are under the commission for the promotion of virtue and prevention of vice. And he recently, of course, received a lot of attention for letting women drive cars. What changes have actually been implemented on the ground? And what is Bin Salman trying to do? Well, I mean, the ban on women driving became ridiculous uh, over the last 20 years um, because Saudi Arabia was the only country in the world that didn't allow women to drive. And it became a political issue uh, used by the government um, in order to uh, divide uh, men and women. Um, Initially, the government said that uh, it has nothing to do with the ban on driving. It's a social issue that people just decide uh, on whether they want to drive. Then they said that it is uh, illegal from the Islamic point of view. Then suddenly Mohammed bin Salman announced that he would allow women to drive. Um, And I do remember last year when uh, women were allowed to drive, Western media jumped on the topic and every uh, newspaper, television, Etc. wanted to write about this revolutionary move, forgetting that, you know, driving is really um, not that important in the life of many women. It is important for those women who want to commute to work. But then we get stories and even uh, images of Saudi princess in vogue, uh, in full Uh, like elegance, driving an expensive car. So is this really about helping women to get to their jobs, to run errands and be independent? 
uh, or it's about the reputation of the kingdom by showing that women are now modern and they can drive cars thanks to the vision of Mohammed bin Salman. So the whole uh, issue of women's rights has been hijacked by the regime. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a country with a very small feminist movement, but this feminist movement is struggling and has been struggling in the most uh, uh, unfree environment. And a lot of them uh, were campaigning and daring to drive and filming themselves, putting their uh, films, uh, video clips on YouTube, etc., in order to encourage other women to campaign. And because they became so organized and articulate, Mohammed bin Salman wanted to actually hijack their struggle and allowed women to drive and wanted to be given the full credit. Uh, and we know that after giving women the, uh, the right to drive, uh, women activists were put in prison until the present day. In fact, Lejeune Al-Hudlil, one of the young women campaigners, was uh, kidnapped from the United Arab Emirates and brought to Saudi Arabia recently, and she is in detention. Uh, another professor, Hatoun Al-Fasi, who's an academic, an archaeologist, she was campaigning for the right to drive. She was campaigning for the right to be included in, in the um, uh, municipal election as voters because initially women were not allowed to vote. Um, and this professor is now in prison. Uh, there are other uh, women campaigners who are actually grandmothers now. They've been campaigning since the 1990s, and now they are in prison. So if Mohammed bin Salman is a reformer, he gave women the right to drive. Why is he imprisoning women activists? It's because he wants to hijack their struggle and take all the credit. And uh, he also knows that a women's movement is threatening because it's not just going to be stopping uh, 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 at the right to drive, they have more more issues to to uh, deal with, such as the guardianship system, which is actually very important because Saudi women is not regarded as a legal person. She has to be represented by her male guardian if she wants to get a job, if she wants to get a passport, if she wants to leave the country, open a bank account, have a hospital uh, appointment, etc. Um, and, and this is extremely important. So until the present day, the guardianship system is relaxed, but it's not abolished. Let's talk about Vision 2030, which is Bin Salman's proposal to modernize and diversify the Saudi economy. It includes all sorts of things, including selling off stock in the public oil company, Aramco, major cuts to public subsidies, and also, is it pronounced NEOM? N-E-O-M? Yes. A $500 billion high-tech city on the northwestern Red Sea coast, Rosie Bashir calls it a utopian sustainable megacity, which has been presented not only as, quote, the solution to the country's ailments, but also as a lucrative global investment opportunity and socio-technical experiment rooted in religious tolerance and sustainable development. Explain bin Salman's motivations in terms of their economics and in terms of their domestic and global politics and also the function served by consultants at McKinsey in all of this. For an economy to be dependent on a single commodity, uh, it makes it vulnerable. 
it's it's not the first time that uh, oil prices collapse or decrease. Uh, it follows a cycle, and from the, the time oil was discovered, there are cycles when the price goes up and cycles when the price goes down. And therefore, this kind of situation makes it very difficult to plan, um, uh, to make plans, to have budgets um, that are stable, to start new projects and be confident that you can finish them. Um, And therefore, the 2014 oil crisis um, made it uh, difficult for the Saudi regime to maintain a kind of welfare system whereby the the government becomes the source of uh, a welfare for its, its citizens. Uh, it provides free school, free uh, university education, free hospitals um, without taxing them. And therefore, Mohammed bin Salman realized that he has a problem. He doesn't have the money because oil prices went down. And he tried very hard to uh, uh, um, make everybody believe that he will be able to maintain the same level of spending, creating jobs uh, for Saudis um, without uh, a serious change. So his vision uh, has multiple elements. One of them is privatization. And this means that you sell government assets, the electricity company, the telecommunication, etc. But this is not new. Saudi economy had been struggling to, to privatize even before uh, Mohammed bin Salman. The other uh, uh, topic is Saudization, which means that you replace the foreign workers with uh, uh, locals, with Saudis, in order to increase employment opportunities. This hasn't happened because they are still issuing visas for foreigners to come and work in Saudi Arabia. Um, And there are reasons for that. It's cheap labor. The private sector resists employing Saudis because it wants outside cheap labor. Uh, If they employ Saudis, they have to pay all sorts of benefits and the cost of labor becomes high. Um, So the the, the Saudization is not going as Mohammed bin Salman hopes uh, it will go. The other only new dimension in all this is the promise uh, of the privatization or the uh, uh, floating of 5% of Aramco, the oil company. This is new, but it hasn't happened. It is still a process. It's not going to happen very soon for a very important reason. Saudi Arabia has to meet the legal requirements for the IPO of Aramco if it's going to sell shares of Aramco in London or New York or elsewhere. Uh, the, you need transparency. You need to know where oil, uh, the real value of the, of, of the 5%, how much oil is there, uh, what, what these investors uh, need to have a transparent system, which Aramco and the Saudi regime may not be able to meet because we know that the, the regime treats the oil as its own property. And there are no checks on on how the regime spends the money from oil. And therefore, it is becoming difficult. He announced that he wants to do the 5% uh, IPO, but then it was uh, announced that it is on hold and it is postponed.
I have doubts whether it will happen in the near future. So the, 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 uh, the Vision 2030, there's nothing really new about it. Uh, and the, the involvement of McKinsey is well known now. It's a blueprint that they probably have taken off the shelf and did it in Saudi Arabia because other countries in the Middle East had visions. They even have so, the same name. <laughs> they, they have the same name. So Egypt had one and Egypt uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s started to open up its centralized economy for foreign investment and uh, 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 open the tourism sector, etc. But it hasn't led to uh, a kind of economic achievement. Uh, in fact, uh, when you have an economy entangled with an opaque political system, these projects don't succeed. And Saudi Arabia will face the same same kind of uh, uh, problems because uh, there are no rule of law. Um, the investors are hesitant to put all their eggs in the basket of Mohammed bin Salman because he hasn't proven to be reliable. What about uh, the austerity that's part of bin Salman's agenda? How would that? How does that affect the the Saudi model of regime legitimation, which includes the distribution of oil rents and and more generally, how would you describe the traditional role of? paid for hegemony in Saudi Arabia versus outright repression in terms of how the royal family secures popular consent? There was a kind of social contract that the government doesn't tax its citizens. It gets its money from oil. It distributes some of the oil revenue on the population, and the population doesn't have the right to ask any questions. Um, But that had become... uh, unsustainable simply because there's no money anymore to go around and a lot of projects are started um, and then stopped because the budgeting for them doesn't take into account the fluctuation in oil prices. So uh, in a way, uh, when Mohammed bin Salman introduced his vision, he said that he's going to put government jobs on hold. So Saudis should go and find jobs in in the private sector. But then he, uh, six months later, he went back on that uh, decision and said that we can't because he felt that there is dissatisfaction with this. There is a population that is used to having a job guaranteed by the government and now there aren't any jobs. So the unemployment uh, figures rose and he decided that he's going to stop that. Uh, So, for example, uh, subsidizing electricity and uh, energy. Um, This is an extremely important uh, issue for Saudis because quite a lot of the oil that Saudi Arabia produces is consumed domestically. And once you remove the subsidies, they have to pay market prices for energy, for electricity bills. And this is a, a problem now because quite a lot of families can't afford to pay the prices cannot afford to pay their bills. Um, And uh, Mohammed bin Salman is forced to go backward and forward. Uh, So if he makes some promises um, uh, and makes some decision, he's forced to to actually change his mind and put them on hold. So today uh, it is estimated that uh, uh, the uh, unemployment figures went up to 12%, which is very high. 
um, especially that the country is got a, 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 a huge youth cohort. Uh, but he uses this sort of uh, uh, vision to create utopias. Uh, utopias are important to keep the momentum um, and also to keep the West hoping that a lot of money in Saudi Arabia, a lot of business opportunities, and we should go there. But, you know, uh, it's not the first time that the Saudis, uh, the Saudi regime, promises to create, you know, superb, incredible cities. Um, usually these decisions are made. I do remember uh, King Abdullah wanted to create a financial hub in Riyadh. Now it's empty. The banks are not moving there from the whole world. He thought that he would cre create Dubai in, in Saudi Arabia, where all the international global businesses and corporations would move. But obviously that didn't happen. And these cities that are created remain uninhabited. Neom, the same thing. It's a, a promise of a, a super modern, hyper modern uh, city that is, he, he, he admitted that it's not for Saudis, it's for the global community. So when, when you have decisions like this uh, reached in consultation with management consultants, with complete isolation, People are not involved in the vision, and they are expected to just simply go along with it. They have no stake in this vision. It, it seems very telling that the idea is creating a new Saudi Arabia upon this tabula rasa instead of a politics that seeks to improve Saudi Arabia as it actually exists. Yes, it's like uh, he has ambitions and he wants his name to be associated with a new kingdom. But it's not going to happen because, you know, destroying the, the past and creating something new is very problematic. Um, most uh, uh, societies, economies and politics evolve at, at that point where the old and the new intersect and uh, evolve in a peaceful way. But this logic of Mohammed bin Salman of eradicating, purifying, creating something new is, is problematic. It doesn't work like this. You, you can't cut a society from its past suddenly and create entrepreneurs out of people who had been used to just, you know, having government jobs, secure government jobs for life, unless, unless they are critical of the regime at that point, they will be sacked. There's a way in which the West looks at Saudi Arabia and frames certain things that we like about it as Western and the things we don't like about it as holdovers from a tradition-bound Oriental past. But in fact, and I talked to Timothy Mitchell a lot about this, the Saudi Arabia we know today was very much created as a project that is simultaneously capitalist, imperialist, and fundamentalist. And I want to talk to you about that history and how bin Salman has made a point of rewriting it to serve his own needs. He has made this point of arguing that it was the Iranian revolution of 1979 that turned Saudi Arabia from a moderate Islamic state into a more conservative one. And according to Rosie Bashir, this profoundly distorts actual history in a number of ways. First, in that the Saudi state was founded on a Wahhabi creed that was violently intolerant of Shias. 
um, and also intolerant to others who they considered to be heterodox. And secondly, in that it was King Faisal who ruled from 1964 to 1975 who did so much to make Saudi Arabia into the conservative religious state that it is today. And so it couldn't have been the Iranian revolution that sparked the conservative turn because that came four years after the end of Faisal's rule. Um, Rather, what Bashir argues is that it was a reaction to progressive secular movements inside Saudi Arabia that had threatened the regime and U.S. imperial interests that sparked this conservative reaction. Can you explain that history and what bin Salman is aiming to obscure? Well, uh, bin Salman is aiming to obscure the involvement of his own family in creating that fundamentalist uh, trend in Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, even before King Faisal, was a fundamentalist radical, uh, 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 had a, a radical religious tradition, and that goes back to the 18th century. Uh, when the Wahhabi movement uh, emerged in Central Arabia, and uh, it was uh, the alliance between that movement and the Al Saud uh, under the pretext of returning people to a true Islam that we have the foundation of the first Saudi state in the 18th century. And then the whole model was revived in the 20th 20th century that resulted in the creation of the modern contemporary state. Uh, And therefore, to say that 1979 is the year when Saudi Arabia became radical is complete propaganda, unfounded on any historical uh, evidence, because the, the radicalism was already there uh, and had been there for centuries before. Um, I do remember growing up in Saudi Arabia in the late 60s and 70s, and it was hardly the liberal, uh, moderate Islam um, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman wants to go back to. Uh, women were, allow- were not allowed to drive then. They were forced to uh, uh, wear the facial veil in certain parts of the country. Um, and uh, to say that in 1979, uh, it, it all changed and became radical, this is just propaganda and also absolving uh, his family and its history from any responsibility for uh, the radicalism that had spread uh, in every corner of, of uh, Saudi Arabia and also exported abroad. So uh, it, it is very difficult to see that Saudi Arabia was such a liberal uh, place before 1979. But one thing that happened in 1979, and that is the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, it, over the hearts and minds of Muslims. Iran presented a kind of revolutionary situation that what became attracted, uh, uh, sorry, attractive to some Saudis and Muslims, they thought that, well, we could establish an Islamic state that is anti-Western, that is a revolutionary, cares about Islamic issues. Because prior to 1979, the Shah's Iran and Saudi Arabia were key pillars of the U.S.-backed uh, geopolitical order in the region. Yes, absolutely. And the Shah has gone so uh, in the U.S., I think the attention became 
uh, focused on Saudi Arabia as the only partner that they could rely on and uh, after the demise of the Shah. And therefore, the, Saudi Arabia's importance was, was exaggerated. Uh, and it became the country where the U.S. Uh, had to deal with in a more focused way lest it loses it as it lost the Shah of Iran just, you know, across uh, the, the uh, Persian Gulf. Uh, and therefore, Saudi Arabia was constructed as an important country for the stability of the region, for fighting all the anti-imperialist, nationalist, and socialist movements in the Arab world. Uh, and unfortunately, they used Islam uh, in its Wahhabi radical uh, uh, form to fight those kind of uh, subversive forces in the eyes of the West. And the, the whole project culminated in the participation of Saudi Arabia, its money, and also its people in the jihad in Afghanistan against the, uh, the Soviet occupation, which was regarded or constructed as a, a jihad against the godly, godless communist. What also happened in 1979 that matters tremendously here, of course, is that inside Saudi Arabia, armed Wahhabi Islamists took over the Grand Mosque in, in Mecca. And that same month, there was also the Katif uprising in in the Shia East. What did those uprisings reveal about the Saudi state at the time? And how did they respond to them? Well, it was a, a, a moment of... Uh, of alarm, I think uh, the uh, the two sides of Saudi Arabia, one in the Holy Mosque in Mecca in the west and in the east, uh, brought to the attention of Saudi Arabia the problems it had created inside the country. The Katif and the eastern province among the Shia they had been suppressed because of Saudi Wahhabi tradition. Uh, their their religious beliefs were not recognized. They were condemned as basically non-Muslim. And decades of that led to the uprising in the Katif and in the eastern province. On the other side, in the West, it's the, the excessive uh, Wahhabi preaching that radicalized people. And they thought that the Saudi government with its allies, alliance with the West had deviated from the original path of the founder of the Wahhabi movement, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, who wanted to have a break with the so-called infidels. And, uh, and therefore, it's, it's an uprising in Mecca from within the Saudi Wahhabi tradition, whereas the other one in, in the eastern province was an attempt to uh, uh, claim certain rights that had been denied for a long time. Toby Jones wrote in Middle East Report that, quote, in the Gulf of the 21st century, crises are no longer undesirable, but rather have considerable political utility. In fact, given the arc of history, whereby the redistribution of oil wealth has failed to ensure regime stability or political quietism, the regional system may have arrived at a moment where political survival actually requires the manufacturing of permanent crisis at home and in the region. What do you make of this argument? Do the royal families of the Gulf and their supporters in the U.S. foreign policy establishment 
including uh, Jared Kushner, who has created a reactionary triumvirate between himself and uh, bin Salman and the Abu Dhabi crown prince Mohammed bin Zayed. Do you think it's correct that they now see crises as not things that have to be instigated to achieve specific objectives, but rather that they want to maintain a permanent state of crisis because that's useful in and of itself? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, a crisis, uh, keeping the Saudi regime and the other Gulf countries on their toes, uh, uh, exaggerating the Iranian uh, uh, threat, uh, keeping that is extremely important. It's an opportunity to sell more arms. It's an opportunity to control those clients because they can't defend themselves. Remember, in 1990, Saudi Arabia had to import 500,000 military personnel to protect itself against an invasion by Saddam Hussein. So if you keep the momentum with the crisis, the crisis actually uh, yields some positive results for those people because you could... You could uh, 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 play on the fears and uh, vulnerability of a regime like Saudi Arabia or the UAE or even the other Gulf countries. But the system itself generates serious crisis. Uh, The the, the crisis that these regimes have is their absolute rule, especially the Saudi uh, regime. There is no, uh, if it succeeds, it could claim all the success for itself. But it, if it fails in any project, whether economic or social, etc., there's only the regime that can be blamed. And therefore, crisis is built into the system. There are no mechanisms to allow for mistakes, reconsideration, debate, uh, like all politics. It's all about trying various um, um, uh, strategies. Some of them are going to work. Others are not going to work. Also, not having a legitimate opposition that checks on your performance uh, means that uh, failure uh, is covered up. Uh, It's not talked about or you're not allowed to discuss the failure of any project. And uh, therefore, um, you know, failure becomes embedded in the system and the system implodes from within. Uh, a lot of money and resources are wasted. Um, even an economic project, as a Saudi now, there is one economist who criticized the project or the the idea that uh, 5% of Aramco is going to be floated in international markets. He is in prison now, Isam al-Zamir. So if, if you silence everybody, the crisis is there and it's going to stay there. There are no ways to discuss mistakes, to learn from mistakes. And therefore, the the, the repetitive pattern of having a state of crisis continues. Well, Madawi al-Rashid, thank you very much. Thank you. Madawi al-Rashid is a professor at the London School of Economics, Middle East Center, and a dissident scholar from Saudi Arabia. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after lamenting the universal lapse into barbarism, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually, but not always twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. 
Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And last but not least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Music